Think just for a moment about how you got to school as a kid. Did you take a long bus ride, passing open fields and making only a few stops along country roads? Or maybe you hopped on a subway, zipping beneath crowded streets, bodegas, and the clamor of pedestrians. yourself, how many times did you see a prison on the way to school? Or a county jail? What about squad cars, officers in uniform? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. In today's episode, we're looking at policing and imprisonment, past and present. We're starting off by exploring how growing up in a neighborhood full of law enforcement and jails can negatively impact young people's sense of self, especially for African-American boys. They see a bunch of police officers, a bunch of police cars. They see jails, um, uh, prisons, etc. So I probably or may begin to think about myself as, as a criminal. And later in the show, how policing and legalized violence upheld servitude and slavery in earliest Virginia. The runaways themselves were kind of handed off from official to official until they got back to their master's home. And the laws said that each of those officials could whip that runaway up to 39 times. First, Dr. Stacy Houston. He says just the presence of prisons and jails in a neighborhood can lead to an increased risk of incarceration for African-Americans. He says the negative impact of the criminal justice system in African-American neighborhoods can even be compared to environmental hazards like toxic waste. Stacy Houston is a professor of criminology, law, and society at George Mason University. Stacy, you are studying what happens when kids interact with the justice system. What have you found? So I come to this from a background that looks at a multitude of ways that individuals end up coming into contact with the justice system, thinking about how schools, an institution that, you know, is typically a, a social mobility vehicle. The more you're in school, the longer you spend there, the better you do there, the, the better off you'll be in terms of many outcomes in society, in terms of job, in terms of um, the amount of money you make, in terms of your health. But I've started to interrogate a little bit, you know, how the education system might be actually creating negative outcomes. And the particular negative outcome that I look at is school suspension and looking at school suspension as, as the first entry point that many people have into the justice system. So I'm finding that this process of the school to prison pipeline that we hear people talk about around the dinner table on popular media now is uh, a process that's very real. Talk to me about the school-to-prison pipeline. You're right. Mm -hmm. We have heard of that. Right. What does it mean to you? So to me, it means that something happens in school. There's this disciplinary action for a wrong behavior, something that someone did that, you know, was harmful to the learning environment of a particular student or other students. And because of that, they need to be removed from, from that institution of school and placed in another one that's separate from society. Um, so students are being suspended from school and then ending up somehow uh, in the justice system. And there have been other studies that said, yes, there is indeed, in many areas, the so-called school-to-prison pipeline. 
Right. There's, there, there have been many studies, and, and a lot of them have been qualitative in nature that really give uh, intricacy. So they, they sort of take away the, the mythical nature of the school-to-prison pipeline and how it happens. And instead, they, they tell stories of, of youth who, um, who are suspended for things that they may have not been suspended for in the first may should have not been suspended for in the first place, and that it's particularly happening to black male students more so than it is to other groups. How did you do your study? So I took a data set and I looked at whether or not these kids um, had been suspended. And I looked at suspensions between the years of 12 and 18. And then I looked at after they turned 18, uh, were they more likely, because of that suspension, to be incarcerated within five years of turning 18. What did you find? Were you surprised? I was a little surprised. So I thought um, that it would be universal, that everyone who would be suspended would, would have a higher chance of being incarcerated. But I didn't expect to find such pronounced uh, race and gender differences that this is more real, very, very uh, much more real for African-American boys than it is for any other group that I studied. Could you tell why that was? So that, that was a big question that, uh, that everyone was asking when I first did this study. One thing that I think is happening in particular, I focused on trying to figure out why we weren't finding this effect for black girls. We hear stories about black girls being suspended for having an attitude or for wearing a particular hairstyle or things that that don't necessitate uh, bad behavior or things that might wind you up uh, being incarcerated in, uh, if you were outside of school. So they're being suspended for little things, but those little things aren't enough to then lead them to being incarcerated later in life. They're not having to do uh, as bad of things to be suspended as male students and black male students are. I wanted to know what other ways was the justice system and in education and the things happening around a young person during this early period of their life, patterning what would happen later on. So I, I moved into this body of research where I'm looking at how indicators of the justice system, like the presence of jails, the presence of prisons, the presence of police in these communities, in these communities where people are supposed to be learning, they're supposed to be growing, developing, loving their family, developing friendships. What does having the presence of the justice system, particularly in a time where the relationship between citizens and the justice system in America are not, not great, it's not, it's not a great one. What happens when you're suspended? What happens when you are kicked out of school? What happens in the community? Well, one thing that could happen is they see that school is not for them. Well, you look around you and what else do you see? I'm hypothesizing that one of the things that they see in some communities is the justice system. They see a bunch of police officers, a bunch of police cars. They see jails, um, uh, prisons, etc. And that represents the second pathway. So if education isn't a vehicle, probably or may begin to think about myself as, as a criminal and pattern how I think about myself and how I, it, it controls or defines uh, the trajectory of my life. So you took a look at maps of where do these kids live and what sorts of justice-affiliated institutions are nearby? Right. So I'm actually mapping now where these justice system facilities are. So step one in this project is actually figuring out is there some systematic placement of these uh, justice systems and these justice facilities. I think right now we know a ton about prisons, that they're placed in, in rural areas. And I think the idea there is that when they were first built, they were there to bring jobs and to bring money into the economy in those rural areas, but also to keep those prisoners away from, you know, large groups of people in case there was an escape or an outbreak, you know, sort of a quarantine idea. But we know a, a bit less about where jails are placed, uh, where police stations are placed. But we can draw from uh, two particular uh, things that we do know. So we know that police officers and, and patrols are concentrated in areas, um, I'm putting air quotes around this, characterized by high crime. 
what we what often happens uh, as a result of that or how that's connected is it's uh, concentrated around uh, groups of people who who are low income, who don't have access to a ton of resources. It's concentrated in black and brown communities, and it's concentrated in areas characterized by uh, high rates of mental illness and homelessness, for example. So um, it's not necessarily high rates of crime, but we capture more crime there because there's a police presence there. And then the second thing I know is that environmental hazards are strategically placed. So I had a, a project that I worked on um, a few years back where my colleagues and I looked at the placement of bus depots in New York City. To describe briefly, a bus depot was a place where buses go to be worked on, they go to be serviced, be gassed up, etc., and then sort of sent back out. What we know about bus depots is that they produce a lot of pollution, that they're bad for the area and the people in the area that, that surround them. And we wanted to know if bus depots were placed in areas characterized, again, by a high concentration of low-income individuals and racial and ethnic minorities. Well, I'm sure they're not around high-income areas, right? That's right. That's right. And what we also tested was it's not just about the race and the socioeconomic status of that place. It's both of those things together. So they're more likely to be found in areas that are black and low-income rather than areas that, you know, have a high concentration of black individuals that that are wealthy. Putting those two things together, knowing that justice patrols and police officers are placed um, in areas characterized by high crime, proxy for um, low income and and high minority areas, and knowing that there is this environmental hazard, that we have a tendency in America to place individuals near environmental hazards, I have this this idea or suspicion that um, the same thing is done with justice system facilities. And it's done intentionally. You know, it's not something that we think about super consciously, but we have a practice in this country of practicing social control. And we want to control individuals who uh, we think may act in deviant ways or we think lesser or inferior or um, and, and, and if we put this around youth who are who are told that they don't belong in one institution where we say is it's social mobility. And if you if you stay here and you do well here, um, you'll have a better life. The alternative is you'll wind up in one of these institutions. And my additional research demonstrates that winding up in those institutions is bad um, for a number of things, including your, your psychological well-being. What kinds of institutions do you mean they would wind up in? Jail, prison? I think beyond those physical institutions, yes. Yes, yes to your question. Yes, they are um, you know, winding up in jails and in prisons. But they're just winding up involved with the justice system. They're, they're coming into more contact with justice system actors and justice system facilities. Even court is another example. So yeah, there's a great chance that you'll be arrested, you'll be confronted, arrested, and you'll wind up in court and then you won't actually ever spend any time in jail. We have to think about the ways that all of those things, plus just the actual presence of the justice system, can be harmful and can shape the actions, behaviors, feelings of young people in particular. Have the attitudes of students and classes, have their anxieties or disgust with the system changed in the years you've been teaching? So this is just my second semester as, as a professor, <laughs> but in my very first one, yes, absolutely. I had a student come into class on the first the first day. I get it mixed up whether it was the first day or the second day, but we started talking about these issues, and I told them up front, we're going to be talking about race. We're going to be talking about things that happened in the media that you may have seen in the media, and we're going to be you know, understanding them from, from a scientific perspective and, and using data to understand what's happening and what's going on. And this student blatantly told me um, on that day, uh, having given them some context of, of already of why these issues you know, may be occurring, 
that if black people did what they're supposed to do in interactions, then this wouldn't happen to them <laughs> blatantly in front of class. Um, and, and to me, as a black male, I'm in front of that class and, and stuck by it, you know, and, and didn't think twice about saying that. But by the end of that class, the, that student was my highest performing student and understood the most uh, these issues that I, was, that I was trying to paint a picture of in this class and, and thought the most critically about them. Why do you care so much about this line of research? Was it something happened to a friend or a family member and you thought, I'm going to use my tools to really look into this? I think, so personal experience. I have had encounters with the justice system and I honestly have grown tired of being in situations where the lights come on behind me um, because uh, you know I may have been going five miles over or I may have not been. And uh, I have to think about not just the fact that I'm going to get a ticket and it's going to be expensive, but that my life could be on the line uh, because of this interaction that I'm about to have. Many of us have been, particularly black and brown people, have been prepared for interactions with the justice system, right? They parents and our friends and our, our family members and loved ones have told us to, you know, just, just speak in your most kind voice um, and, and speak like you're, you're educated, do whatever the police officer asks, et cetera. But it's, it's, we're beginning to realize that even when we do those things and, and we act as a model citizen, things can still go wrong. And I've grown to have a particular passion of, of figuring out how those interactions and other interactions in the presence of the justice system from a very early age shape the distribution of resources in our society and the distribution of health and the distribution of the, the chance to live a, a good life and a satisfied life. Stacey Houston is a professor of criminology, law, and society at George Mason University. Coming up next what the early history of servitude and slavery in this country teaches us about incarceration and punishment today. According to Allison Madar, early Virginia laws about slavery and punishment created a culture of control that's still with us today. She studied old advertisements for runaway servants and enslaved workers to show how the early colonists kept unfree workers in their place. Madar is a professor of history at the University of Oregon and a fellow at Virginia Humanities. Her forthcoming book reveals that everyday white citizens, not just the law enforcement, participated in surveillance and policing in order to uphold slavery. Allison, you have taken a deep dive into the lives of enslaved people and servants right at the very beginning of our nation's founding. What most interested you? And what did you find? Well, I think um, what most interested me was to to think about the law as not just the codes or the statutes that are written down, but to, to think about the law as the people in charge and the people who were enacting these laws in the colony. And the earliest laws in Virginia in the 1600s in terms of labor um, had to do with indentured servants. So very fundamentally, an indentured servant had to do what? What was the contract? The contract would be signed in England. Say a uh, 18- to 20-year-old male hears that there are ships going to Virginia promising certain things if he would agree to 
work for someone else for four to seven years. Were there a lot of these guys? Yeah, it was the, the first real labor force of, of the founding of Virginia. So early on in Jamestown and Virginia, what were some of the accommodations made in the rules to govern their servants? One of the things that, that shows up very early on is how are we going to deal with unruly servants? What are we going to do when a servant runs away? What are we going to do when a servant refuses to honor their, their contract? And were the laws designed to make sure you weren't too harsh against those runaways and that they had rights? Uh, yes, servants did have some rights. Those become more stark and more obvious, those rights, once the enslaved population starts to increase because it was a way for colonists to make clear differences between indentured servitude and enslaved labor. Just so we understand, when the first enslaved people arrived, that was famously 1619, when 20 or so people who were captured and forcibly brought in these ships to North America were released or bartered away to colonists? Yes, that's kind of the famous first arrival, 1619, of these Africans into Virginia. In those early years, the institution of slavery in Virginia um, was not yet what it would be. Those Africans, they were enslaved. They were not servants. And they lived their lives as enslaved people. But the institution that, of slavery that we understand wasn't fully formed yet. Um, because it was a mixed labor force, still servants and slaves. And it seems like as the enslaved labor force increased, the rules and the laws also increased. You've written that Virginia had a culture of violence toward enslaved people in those early years. It was a brutal system favoring the masters. How, how could you see how widespread that was? You can see it in two places. You can see it in the laws. For example, laws that clearly state that if a master punishes their enslaved laborer and that enslaved laborer happens to die, that master will not be brought to trial and, and that the master themselves would not receive any punishment. If someone else kills the enslaved laborer of someone else, they too wouldn't be punished. But the master would be reimbursed by the colony for having lost that, quote, property. What were some of the significant laws that developed and were on the books as colonists and masters tried to solidify how slaves are to be treated? The most significant law is in the early 1700s, the 1705. It's called an Act Concerning Servants and Slaves making very clear the differences between enslaved laborers and temporary servants, right? Servants are going to serve for four to seven years. They are then ostensibly free after that. And the condition of their bondage, right, the fact that they are unfree is not inherited. Enslaved laborers are, are slaves for life, their enslavement is passed down through the mother, which means that any child that an enslaved woman had is also a slave. You can see in that law in particular the ways in which enslaved laborers are treated much more harshly than servants. It's a very race-based shift. 
And what could you see also besides the laws of the colony about how the masters viewed and treated the indentured servants and the slaves? Um, Other things I looked at, I looked at the journals and the writings of masters. Two particular masters wrote everything down. So one of those men is is a man named William Byrd, a a very well-known and wealthy planter in Virginia. And another is is Landon Carter, also a well-known and wealthy planter. What you can see is in, in particular in, in William Byrd's writings is the violence that he enacted on his enslaved laborers for things that shouldn't be punished. And just very, very matter-of-factly writing these things down from when he woke up in the morning to what what things he read and then very easily then sliding into and then I... You know, beat my enslaved boy for having wet the bed, and then going back to kind of discussions of his the management of his plantation, and to read those things is is heart wrenching and it's it's very jarring. You've also written about how these men treated enslaved women, and that it was particularly cruel and without regard to them. Yes, enslaved women were treated horribly. They were exploited in two ways. They're exploited for their manual labor, but they are also exploited for what we call their reproductive labor because laws were in place that said that any child born of an enslaved woman would be a slave. It meant that the more children they had, the more enslaved people their master had. Enslaved women are having children through non-consensual relationships and through consensual ones. And they're sometimes giving birth to mixed-race children who are often the children of the masters themselves. So as time went by, you started to see that as the laws became harsher toward enslaved people, they were also harsher toward servants. Yes. Masters who are creating this slave culture And this um, culture of power and this culture of violence in Virginia in the 18th century, they sometimes, maybe unwittingly, create instances where, where servants' lives aren't getting better. They're not ever as bad as lives of the enslaved, but they, they kind of bring them into this, this culture of power and they, they see them as another labor force to control. So with runaway servants and runaway enslaved laborers, by the 18th century, Virginians have created this culture of surveillance and have asked people who own slaves, people who own servants, constables and court justices, and people who work for the churches, they've asked all of these people to be on the lookout for unfree laborers. And so they they call on the entire community to return these laborers to the rightful place. And what I found is that community members are willing to do this because it's economically advantageous for them to do so. What do they get? They get money for for bringing runaways to the courts to be returned to their masters. You know, this is a way for them to ingratiate themselves to these powerful people in the community. Was there also punishment for both the indentured servants who'd run away and the enslaved people who'd run away? There was. Servants would have more time added to their contracts. And the difference, of course, with enslaved labor is they don't have any more time to give. They're already giving 
their entire lives. So the laws themselves don't really say what's going to happen to enslaved laborers once they get back to their masters. But we can imagine that those enslaved laborers are going to be brutalized um, and they're going to be made examples of. In, in returning runaways to their master's home, the runaways themselves were kind of handed off from official to official until they got back to their master's home. And the laws said that each of those officials could whip that runaway up to 39 times. As you delve deeply into this early history, what do you think has been among the most illuminating pieces of firsthand evidence you came across of just how awful this slavery system was? I think the thing that really struck me was looking at old issues of the Virginia Gazette and reading through runaway advertisements and getting to the end of an advertisement and finding that that master promised much more money for the head of their runaway enslaved labor than if someone brought that runaway back to them alive. And when I say much more money, I'm talking about a master offering 10 pounds to kill their enslaved labor and 40 shillings to bring that laborer back alive. And that incentive to kill is horrifying. And it it didn't happen. It, it wasn't common. Um, but every time it pops up, it devastates me. It just is just one of these moments um, where where it's just really hard to to, to continue. And, and that to me is just a really stark example of how these masters viewed these these people. These were people um, and they did not see them as such. You know, you also said early on that the system of enslavement extended to the magistrates and the churches mm-hmm. and the fabric of society, that it wasn't just, hey, the masters were trying to control these people. It really was throughout the entire colony or much of it. Right. That's striking, too. You you can see why there might even today be vestiges of a culture of control. Absolutely. And this culture of control is very much linked with you know, this culture of power and who has power and, and attempts to maintain power and, and who, gets, who gets to have that power. You know, just the fact that churches were required to post descriptions of runaways on the church doors and to read out on Sundays kind of the descriptions of these people, right? That is a clear indication that, that churches are working within this system and their congregants are working within this system, all for a, a smaller group of people to maintain, you know, their power. Allison Madar is a professor of history at the University of Oregon and a fellow at Virginia Humanities. She's working on a book about unfreedom and the law in early Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back.
Welcome back from Virginia Humanities. This is With Good Reason. A warning, the next segment contains discussion of child abuse and sexual trauma. Conversations about prison tend to focus on men in urban areas, but recent research shows women are the fastest-growing incarcerated population in America. Bonnie Zier is a sociologist at Virginia Tech. She takes us inside a rural Wyoming women's prison to understand the experiences of what some women call the little prison on the prairie. Bonnie, you interviewed dozens of women who were either incarcerated there or had been. What brought you out to that remote prison in Wyoming? Well, we knew that it was the smallest prison or nearly the smallest in the entire United States, only got 250 beds. We also knew it's one of the most remote prisons in the entire country. Can you describe the prison? What was it like? Yeah, if you can imagine just the very smallest of towns where the downtown goes by in the blink of an eye and then turning off the road and seeing nothing but prairie, you know, a couple of antelope, and then making your way on a pretty bumpy road over to um, what looks like basically a huge brick elementary school surrounded by masses of barbed wire. There's nothing to see for miles and miles except the big sky. It's so remote, the women even call it the little prison on the prairie, right? That's right. We also heard names like uh, Camp Cupcake and Barbie Boot Camp. And they say that because life is relatively easy at this prison, right? Rules they can abide by. That's right. I mean, they... um, would tell you that some of the challenges are that the correctional officers have a large turnover because it is such a remote location. And so when we build prisons in these very uh, remote places, people tend to forget about how that cuts off women from their children, it cuts off you know visitors, and it also unfortunately leads to quite a turnover because it's difficult to live in such an out-of-the-way place. And so correctional officers were often brought in from California and other places and didn't stay very long. What sort of things are women in there for? It's minimum, medium, and maximum security all in one place. Only 20% of the women have committed a violent crime. 30% of the women are in for drug-related crimes, but there are many more who are addicted or who have made their mistakes or their lapses in judgment because of substance use, and that is often in combination with intimate partner violence and experiencing intergenerational poverty. What they do often is they will turn to drugs to cope with or alcohol to cope with their conditions, which are very difficult and sometimes structurally abusive. Uh, Many of them came from homes where they experienced abuse as children or experienced neglect um, at the very least, and then they tend to meet up with and find um, intimate partners who then also are abusive, maybe involved in drug selling already or drug using, and then the cycle starts to perpetuate itself as they look around, they can't find jobs with a living wage, they already have children, the children are dependent upon them, and that stress level rises, right? Um, And I think the difference between rural and urban women is that the support systems, the network, the community services are so much smaller, right? So you might think about it on the one hand and romanticize that close-knit community feeling, but the flip side of that is that everybody knows that your family's the family with the guy in jail, and so the police are always looking at your family and thinking of you as the outlaw family, and when that kind of reputation gets um, 
established, there aren't very many other people to to disrupt that stereotype. And were the abusive experiences they had as children and the abusive relationships they found themselves in in adulthood more the rule than the exception, would you say? Yes, and that was really a persistent pattern that we saw. There was an interesting um, remark made to me. These girls are in here because of some bad guy. And it's not to attribute um, their mistakes to the men, but it's often through their relationships that they end up pretty much conforming to fairly rigid gender roles and sort of doing things that they didn't imagine early on in the relationship they would ever do. Give me examples of some of this. So that includes um, maybe attacking their partner after they just couldn't take it anymore. Um, maybe they're attacking their partner even just with a broom or, you know, um, with something that's lying around the house, um, sort of a cycle of violence. Uh, one of the women said to me, violence has flow. You, after a while, you get so tired of, you know, being sexually and physically assaulted that you may just snap and suddenly you're the one doing the assaulting. And those kinds of situations were, were definitely things that women didn't plan on and didn't anticipate, especially early on in their relationship, they didn't see themselves as the aggressor. Another example would be selling drugs, um, you know, ferrying drugs in the back of cars to uh, go over the border from Utah to Wyoming, and basically, again, coming down to things like I needed to feed my children, and I really found that some of the service work that was available to me wasn't getting food for them fast enough onto the table. Give me some of the stories that individual women told you that stayed with you. Well, there was one uh, woman who talked to me about having grown up in a household which was quite disturbing. She had five brothers and sisters, and her father was a member of a sort of self-produced Christian cult, and he sort of ran the small town with her stepmother. And um, the children were neglected and made to, to do things that they didn't want to do. They were trying to report their parents um, because the parents would go away for weeks at a time and things like that. Parents would never clean, and there were lots of pets, and so there was lots of um, feces in the house and these sorts of um, examples. But the father was so powerful in this tiny town that anything that they reported to the school system, he would you know, claim that they were all liars. And, and it eventually, at age 13, she ran away. She, she slept with various men. She got involved with drugs. And then eventually, um, seeing the treatment of, of a new nephew that had been brought into the home was just so very, very angry that she snapped and, and she actually murdered her stepmother. And of course, she regrets that and she doesn't think this woman should have lost her life. But the way that she described all the moments leading up to that moment, you know, it just, uh, it just sort of takes your breath away and makes you wonder what you would do after all that abuse. Another story that moved me a lot was um, the story of a woman who seemed to keep having a relationship with a person who was already drug addicted and so um, would get into the business of selling the drugs so that she could feed his habit so that she could respond to his pressures and the stress is so high that she turns to the drugs herself and and sort of understanding that transition um, and how she sort of finds herself then um, ferrying drugs across the Utah border and you know kissing her little toddlers on the cheeks and then going off to do this illegal work and you know meanwhile trying to keep her own drug habit um, on the down low from her kids. There was another woman you encountered who had been subjected to many rapes as a small child that continued into her teenage years. Yes, um, 
once um, a boyfriend of her mother's had raped her, she was taken to a doctor um, to be examined, and that doctor raped her. And that was the age of six. And so because of she was so very small, of course, she became extremely fearful. Really, people decided to categorize her as being cognitively impaired. Um, and then as she was growing up, she really learned to just be the very obedient person who sort of fetched everything for everyone and eventually obeyed a boyfriend's commands to fetch a knife and the boyfriend killed another person in the home that was visiting Um, and so she's in jail 25 years to life for being an accomplice to a murder and she said it was so difficult to describe why she went and got the knife I mean even as she went and got it she questioned why she should go get it but she just felt like a robot and just understanding all those previous moments in which her body had just kind of been operated on and she'd kind of left her body um, was something that I'll never forget. Did you come to have any understanding of how the legal system in this in these small towns had treated these women once the crimes had been committed? Well, one one uh, moment that stands out to me is when a woman told me that the judge announced that he was going to lock her up for killing her husband and make her an example for all Wyoming women. This betrayal of the gender roles, this idea that these women are coming from pretty rigid um, and old-fashioned ideas about gender, which gets them internalizing the stigma of whatever their situations are in the first place. You know, why can't I get out of this um, job and get more food to my children? Why can't I stop using these drugs? I I must be a a terrible woman. That's already operating in their minds. But when you have the system sort of pre- judging you in that way and deciding that, you know, you're a deviant, it really doesn't provide a space in the imagination for these women to try to go forward to build their skills and to try to prepare for citizenship on the outside of the bars. Were they less able to find these kinds of services because of how remote their circumstances were? Exactly. A lot of people live in small towns far, far away. So they live in towns of 2,000 to 8,000 people. Um, The services are not available or they don't have reliable transportation to those services, including sometimes things like AA and NA, 12-step programs that have really been useful for a lot of people. How much do you think untreated mental health problems contributed to the prison experience for many of these women? You know, um, what I would say is that the woman badly needed help before, but also during their time in the prison. There was only one counselor per 50 women. The counselor themselves could change. So one session to the next session, you might not know if you would get the same one. So perhaps you had a crisis on a Tuesday, but you couldn't tell yourself, oh, it's okay, I'm seeing my counselor on Friday, because you really didn't know when the next appointment was, or perhaps you knew and it would be changed so often that you couldn't really count on that. And so that I found to be something we really need to try and fix as a society. If we are saying to these women, please rehabilitate yourselves, get ready for being great upright citizens when you get on the outs, how are we not providing some of the most basic ways that they could start to put together that self that they can present to the world and become employable with? How many of these women were also mothers? You know, most of them, I would say more than two-thirds of the women were mothers. 
it turns out we don't provide very um, optimal situations for these mothers to continue to connect with their children. And the women were really inclined to tell me about that. If there was one thing that they told me that kept them feeling hopeful and alive, it was a relationship with a family member, particularly if it were a child. The, the children represented their future to them. And unfortunately, if your child... Um, was actually staying with a family member, which sounds like a pretty good thing, um, you know, and was not in foster care, then there was no provision for Skyping with the children. Um, and instead, you know, you could only make these really expensive phone calls. Um, and then when your money runs out, it runs out. Um, th the Skyping privileges where you could see your children were only available to people who were living with foster families because the reasoning was that the foster families wouldn't have any relationship to crime, whereas they couldn't assume that um, if you're talking to, you know, your mother or your your grandmother who's taking care of your child that the grandmother wouldn't start giving you um, ways to tell you how to make drugs inside the prison. We understand those kinds of ideas, but, you know, these are women who would really like to just see their children's eyes and read them a bedtime story at night, right? And that when not being able to do that is, is, was really painful to them. Did you find that living circumstances day to day in relationships was a little like Orange is the New Black, the Netflix series that depicts a women's prison? You know, are you asking me whether I sort of saw that TV show reflected in there? Yeah. Oh, there's way too much sex in that TV show for me to have seen it in there. <laughs> Pretty funny. Yeah. No, but it, but in all seriousness, um, I would say that some of the friendships that you see in that show um, and some of the joking and also, you know, sometimes the tensions of, of women living close together like that is, is, is reflected in, in the prison. There were, there were definitely jokes about it being worse than, than a high school in terms of cliquishness. And there were, it was interesting that sometimes there were even sort of these gendered remarks from the correctional officers that it was easier to take care of men because men tend to just use their fists instead of trying to verbally uh, insult each other so much. Um, it was just a much more uh, transparent and above board, so they knew what to do, which I found to be um, an interesting way that women judge each other, right, and kind of fall into that uh, old-fashioned mindset of, of thinking that... Uh, women uh, are somehow, uh, 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 in some sense, because they're not physical, are therefore more s suspicious. <laughs> were the guards exclusively women? No. The majority were men, and that is true across the country. The majority of corrections officers in women's prisons are still men. There has been more attention paid to this now that we have Priya. Um, uh, there need to be female officers that are watching the showers and bathrooms rather than male officers, for instance, which is a good improvement. There were actually prison rules, at least at this one rural prison, against hugging each other. Yes. You can't hug anyone. You can't have anyone sit below you on the floor. You can't braid anyone's hair. Those sorts of things um, are put in place to avoid any kind of hidden exchange of small pieces of paper or anything illicit, but human beings need touch, and human beings who are mourning family members and grieving uh, really need touch. So the idea that no woman can touch another woman is, is a really unrealistic um, and really unfortunate, I think, um, policy. You taught a writing course to these women at the Wyoming prison. 
Did the women really crave the course that you offered? They did. They really enjoyed the chance to um, get into some fictional worlds of other women who had written memoirs. They also uh, greatly enjoyed the opportunity to hone their own expressive um, skills through speaking out loud, through writing, through rewriting. They were just joyous about it. The only exception was the very first day one woman came in and she literally slammed her books down on the desk just like out of a sitcom and said, (laughs) well, someone told me to be here and I don't really want to be here. And I found myself thinking, really? Even in a prison there's somebody who doesn't want to be in my class? (laughs) But it turns out she just had a different idea. She had heard the memoir writing class and she had heard that as, you must spill your guts and say every deep, dark secret you possibly have and put it on paper and someone else is going to get to read it. And when we assured her that, no, it was up to her which parts of her life story she might want to write about, her entire face changed. And she loved the experience. You'd never sort of recognize her as the same woman who had done that in the first (laughs) minute. Um, I was hoping that you would be able to bring a couple of pieces from what these women wrote that you could share with us. Yeah, I did. So this one is a poem, My Rhythm of Life, by Sarah M. Lujan. And I'm going to read an excerpt. Memories fade like the smoke of a rex. The lifestyle. Chop the game. Nowadays, stuff so complex. Loyalty. Gone. Yeah, I'm your homegirl. Verdict? Guilty. Not for long. Some say society's morals just ain't the same. I say solo, silent, and savage is the only way. Keep it simple, homegirl. Never lose your sight. In our addiction, yeah, we may have lost the fight. Have we lost the battle? God only knows. Come, jump on the saddle. Take a chance and see what life unravels. I'm jaded of life's own riot. I've done searched high and low for my own rhythm to give. Trying to drown out this demon, it's tiring. It's my turn to live. No more chances, no more games. I throw up deuces to these Mark A. lames. I'll find my rhythm. I'll find my way. I'll put a stop to this cutthroat charade. All I know, homie, is for me, it ends today. My rhythm of life. She is native, um, coming from the reservation, and she was uh, involved in several different uh, sort of, I think what you'd probably call them is youthful escapades. And then finally, as a person who was addicted, she got caught stealing a car, you know, and again, no, no real intention of stealing a car, part of the whole unfolding and unraveling of that evening. Um, which she, I guess what I would remember most about her was the lift of her chin. She was a proud, self-possessed woman who knew she had really made some big mistakes um, and was hoping to turn things around, only 25 years old. Mm. Mm. Are there opportunities for the women to reform within the prison walls? Are there some good programs? Yes, there's a program that has mixed um, reactions from the woman, but I did want to tell you about it since it's such a striking part of the time there. Some women go into the intensive treatment unit, um, a separate living complex for uh, those who are working on changing a pattern in their lives, usually addiction. And 
They go in for about seven to nine months. And the good news is that many of these women really appreciate the chance to work on themselves. They do a lot of journaling, a lot of reflection, a lot of work with 12-step and in small groups. Um, And then the not-so-great news is that other inmates are running the program. And so some inmates feel that some of the consequences or punishments or um, negative sides of the way the program is structured can undermine some of the progress that otherwise they could make. So while it's a mixed experience, it is something that I think is really important to recognize is going on inside. Any ideas for what we could do better for these women rather than just keeping them locked up and shut down? Well, one thing I would absolutely say is important is to try to help these women connect with their children. So if there's any part of a volunteer program you could be a part of, um, to um, because I know that some libraries, for instance, would have uh, the ability to either do book clubs or either and maybe even facilitate a way of having these children, these mothers read books to their children, you know, depending on the state and the laws. That's, that's one thought I have. Um, continuing to press our... Um, policymakers to make the phone calls and visits uh, more affordable for family members because it's really truly through relationship that many of these women um, have maintained um, some hope for their futures and want to work and build their skills. And then finally, there needs to be a lot more programming that's less focused on individual choices. We have so much individualism in America as it is, and these women tend to forget that there's a lot of structural factors that have led them to this moment. And when they internalize this as an individual problem, a defect within themselves, they are again much more likely to turn back to substance use, to get back involved in a a life of crime, and to maybe even return to the prison. What do you mean by less focus on individual choices? So instead of um, programming, which is sort of self-help, because you have been a a bad person who doesn't have these these, um, good ideas, you can reform yourself. Instead, thinking about if you're in an intimate partner relationship and it turns violent, here are some of the warning signs to look for, and here are some of the ways you could access help and start to extricate yourself from the relationship, that it's not about you and your bad judgment. It's really about understanding that many women who are in this situation will need to be careful and take on certain uh, steps in order to extricate themselves. Bonnie Zare is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech. She's co-editor of Outlaw Women, Prison, Rural Violence, and Poverty on the New American Frontier. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. Come to the 25th anniversary of the Virginia Festival of the Book. It's March 20th through 24th in Charlottesville and features hundreds of authors and programs for all ages and reading interests. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzyk, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had help this week from Bill Foy of Virginia Tech. We have some very sad news to announce today. The passing of the founder and past president of Virginia Humanities, Robert C. Vaughn III, or as so many knew him, Rob, 
Rob was, with good reason's greatest supporter. His enthusiasm, insight, and grace, and love for literature, music, history, and the arts inspired us all. And all of us at Virginia Humanities send our love and condolences to his wife, Ellen, and his children, Haley, Liza, and Rob, and their beloved grandsons, Skylar, Dylan, and Holden. His passing leaves a hole in our hearts. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.